Welcome to the October 22nd, 2020 edition of Digging Out. Today's program considers not the last four years, not the last 400 years, but perhaps a couple of a millennia to understand more fully the Native American perspective. And I'm going to let my guest school me on proper terms to use throughout this Digging Out session. Doing this is my guest today, Jacqueline Keeler, a Diné Ihangtonwan, Dakota writer and activist. Her family is of the clan of the Towering House. Her first ancestors descended from Changing Woman, a special lineage which they prize. Jacqueline is editor of the anthology Edge of Morning, Native Voices Speak for the Bear's Ears, Diospe Now, The Good Men Project, and Pollen Nation. As well, she's a contributor to Red Rock Stories. Three generations of writers speak on behalf of Utah's public lands and Telesur English. Jackie hosts a podcast, Not Your Disappearing Indian, among other programming on community radio KBU. Jackie's also contributed to The Nation, Salon, Truth Out, New York Times, The Daily Beast, Mother Jones, Quartz, and the Dartmouth Alumni Magazine. She's also appeared on PRI's The World, BBC, MSNBC, and Democracy Now!, and really works the Twitter sphere. Her handle's J.F. Keeler. She's been awarded Best Environmental Coverage and New California Media Award. Jackie completed her bachelor's degree in sociology film studies at Dartmouth. Under usual circumstances, Jackie is out covering developments in the Dakotas and Eastern Oregon and all over North America, but the pandemic changes all of that up. She comes to us today from her home in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to Digging Out Jacqueline Keeler. Thank you. Well, as we start this interview, I'd like to know, Jackie, what your preferred way that we European descendants at public gatherings acknowledge those who dwelled and continue to reside in these spaces in which we gather. Would you please begin this program with one for our listeners, considering the spaces along the West Coast? Yeah, I know that the, um, there's a present um, practice that many people are trying to institute to provide that sort of historical context of land acknowledgements, acknowledging the, the native nations who once lived on this land or who still do, or who have been displaced or that's, I think that's a good start. That one of the things that I, I think that would, that I do, and I, I give this um, lecture about, about how the U.S. is still a colony and in function, uh, if not in stated form. And, you know, when I look at how the U.S. operates and what it is, I mean, this, these are not the homelands of the United States, right? The United States is a colony and these are the homelands of other nations. So the land acknowledgement really it's just a start. I think that it has to go to really Americans, really beginning to, particularly white Americans, really beginning to understand themselves as colonists. This is not your country. This is not your homeland. You're occupying other people's homelands through the use of military force. And I think that really, one of the things that they, after I go through the whole speech, I ask people, so, you know, if you're a colonist, right, and you are a good person, you consider yourself to be a good person, an ethical person, the question that your own identity and reality poses for you is what would ethical colonialism look like? 
So your position is, is who you are is, 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 is an ethical position, right? And I, and I partly ask this question, you know, partly because it's kind of a crazy question, right? But it's, it's the fundamental question of, of what it means to be American, for, for particularly for white Americans, because this is a white supremacist society, right? And so I think that is the conundrum. And, and it's also the sort of framing that we need to approach this with in order to come to answers that are truly equitable, truly moral, uh, I can really begin to, to find a different path. I think uh, as long as we're using the framing that really it was given to us by the founding fathers and basically consists of a great deal of propaganda, which I break down in my book, Standoff, starting with the- We will uh, talk about, which we will talk yes. about in greater, yes. um, you'll unpack yeah. it out. But yes, you were generally speaking to the acknowledgement that is a, a template it's, a, it's an exercise for us to begin all gatherings. And I, I asked this because I was presenting a civic political engagement kind of a webinar with a, uh, an alumni group of my own. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. This is, it's, it's on me to present that. It's, it's my, this is now my turn. I always thought when I would hear this at conferences of any kind, along it's the West Coast, I'm not sure. And also in uh, where I've attended other conferences around the country. And when I hear that moment, Jackie, it's, it's just, it's so, and I'm not, I don't mean this really, it's not a wasted word choice. It's so spiritual to hear like, okay, everybody, we're all here. We all knew what we're doing here, but I'm gonna make sure we all take this ethical, sort of colonialist step together and acknowledge those that had been here before and continue to reside here. So I don't know if you have one that people can take as, all right, this is something they can bring to their other gatherings of any kind, whether it's church or any. I I see it as as a starting point and I am not a super fan. I think that the pro, the, the pro, that it's a starting point and not, I don't think right. it's the answer. And I, so I'm not going to um, really go any further into it because I think that it's also very problematic because yes. it, it gives, it sort of gives white people a way out. It sort of makes them feel good for the moment. And I am very suspicious of any practices that make white people feel good. Do you know what I mean? Because right. there's an okay. aspect to it, which, in which the, it, there, it's a get out of free jail card I mean and so so I think it's a starting point I'm not gonna um there are things about it that I find I think that a lot of times it's just a way of patting yourself on the back and saying okay I know this but really the answer is to give the land back do you mean I mean it's uh you know if if you really feel that way well then make sure do some do something substantive about it right well acknowledging treaties and so, you know, I'm not going to go here and say, here's how to do it, you know, because I would feel pretty stupid. Yeah, because okay. I think that, that yeah, there's much more serious issues at hand. And that is just a starting point. Like, that's just a baby step, you know. And, well, I see that as making, it makes a place for the agenda is especially where it tends to be environmental conferences, forums, task force, whatever. It, to me, it signals is as we acknowledge who have been here and continue to reside here, there is on the forum agenda 
the practices of the people that continue to be here that must be acknowledged in terms of best practices and environmental management and in terms of a basis for why to do this. It's a gauge of, we, we always see where there's in some environmental forums, there's always this, oh, we're gonna do some new things now, but they're really not doing something new. They're just failing to acknowledge that's yeah. the way it had been done for millennia. So it's not, I'm not trying well, to feel good, but so, I feel like it's, it's agenda setting. Yeah, so I think that, well, you know, the, the terminology of spiritual is, I think, problematic because Correct. The, issue, the, the issue is political. The issue yes. is about sovereignty. And that's often what gets thrown away by the wayside. I mean, when I look at what happened at Sandy Rock, where the issue of sovereignty became sort of, you know, I watched as 360.org pretty much eliminated that from their emails to their, to because I'm on their email list, you know, and you know, I saw what they were sending out to their followers, their members, and they basically excised all of the sovereignty issue out of it. Wow, Jimmy. really? And, and I just talked about the water. Right. I mean, and it's, uh, you know, I think, and yet the only way that their lawsuits have any teeth is through sovereignty, through treaties, right. Right? right? Treaties are only entered into by sovereign nations. Native people are not just people. They're not just an ethnic group. They're actually political entities called nations, right? That are internationally recognized. That's why the U.S. Senate ratified all those treaties with Native nations. And so that's why, you know, when you're talking about environmental issues, that Native nations have a standing in the courts, which uh, have a much higher success many times than ordinary American citizens can bring to the court system. And so I would say that the issue is the recognition of sovereignty. And, and when I'm talking about you know, how I reframe the issue in my book, Standoff, I'm particularly looking at the Revolutionary War, because I had to look at and address the sort of jingoistic language that mm -hmm. the Bundys utilize, which much of it comes out of the Revolutionary War and right. the Constitution. The issue is always comes down to sovereignty. Um, I think that uh, many times people have heard the call over the decades to honor the treaties. And now the hashtag land back has been gaining a lot of currency. So the issue that I think that has to be, the only way it can become truly addressed is, is not through just a momentary good feeling thing, no. uh, you know, but no, but it's through actual substantive re-acknowledgement uh, of the political reality of Native nations to stop occupying their lands through military force, which I often point out that Standing Rock was the military occupation made visible, right? Because those right. lands and um, everything west of the Missouri River in North and South Dakota is held in open violation of international law. It's been occupied for 160 years uh, in violation of the Fort Laramie Treaty. And so it's a treaty ratified by the US Senate. So really, you know, things like land back, honor the treaties. I mean, if the Fort Laramie Treaty was honored, a large portion of, that, of both of those states would go back to the Great Sioux Nation, right? And South Dakota mm -hmm. and North Dakota would pretty much cease to exist politically. States basically, you know, I look at the uh, issue of counties because much of these fights are going happening at the county level, whether you see right. Morton County Sheriff Department in North Dakota, um, you know, taking on the Great Sioux Nation, right, militarily, yes. uh, or you see uh, Harney County uh, in Southern Oregon, you know, sort of standing by, you know, having to endure this sort of occupation by the Bundys, right? Uh, or, you know, you see in uh, Bears Ears with San Juan County 
um, where the fight is going on there locally, um, politically with the right to vote by Navajo people being suppressed for so long. And so it's um, the county system, the state system, all rely on the basically the elimination of native nations. Like I live in Oregon and you, know, you look at the history of, of uh, the, uh, the Oregon Donation Act, you know, which was the, one of the largest you know, uh, land, uh, you know, sort of passing land to individual white Americans you know, uh, and, and taking and extinguishing the title of tribes. States cannot even enter the union until that's done. So everything, the very political existence in the United States, the construction of your identity is really predicated on the political elimination of native people, of native nations. And so when we're talking about, you know, even hashtags like land back, it's just a step. Final resolution is going to be the complete political rehabilitation of native nations. So that they're not just something you have this little fanciful notion about and occasionally think about, but no, they're real entities that you have to deal with day in and day out in your life in very real ways, whether it's having to get a passport to travel through native lands, all these things, or have to negotiate flyover space you know, then you won't be, then Native people are not just a sort of a, someone's spirit animal, but they're actual, you know, political people that you have to contend with in a uh, one-to-one fashion. And, and that's what we need. And that, that, that is actually the moral answer and ethical quandary presented by the very identity of being an American. So I'm listening about the issue you're talking about, the Dakotas, and there is Already, uh, there's a, an increased discussion about the representation of North and South Dakota in the U.S. Senate. And, you know, there's a quibbling about whether so few people populating those states should even have two senators in each state. So there's that debate is already more radical than white descendants can handle. And so this land back this sovereignty acknowledgement, it's a huge thing. And I'm, I guess I'm gonna move into a, a later part of the interview, bring it forward while we're talking about the sovereignty is what the current federal judiciary packing means for getting that negotiation, that rehabilitation of native nations done. Yeah, I don't, you know, I think, uh, what's his name, Walter Echo Hawk, uh, he's one of the founders of the Native American Rights Fund, which is, uh, a law, um, a, a law, basically a public interest law uh, firm. And he has a book called In the Courts of the Conquerors, right? Which is really okay. uh, very, a great, a really good title to submit to, to kind of going on there. Uh, trying and Jackie, speak. when was that available? How long has that book been um, out? It's been out for a few years. Yeah. Okay. You, you can find it, uh, Walter. Required and, um, reading. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, finding uh, justice in, a, in the court systems of a country whose very existence is predicated on your political disappearance. <laughs> it, it's a kind of a funny question, but it, you I know, know. We, do get, we do get progress, I think. What, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, of course, you know, Trump has been able to really fill the federal judiciary uh, with, uh, you know, his own extremely conservative right-wing appointees. And, uh, and certainly we're seeing that at the Supreme Court level. I think for decades, na- Native nations have avoided the Supreme Court because, they know oh. that taking a case there will, will basically create a, a terrible precedent. The way Indian federal law works is that, uh, that all federally recognized tribes 
um, all share in these decisions. So if another tribe takes a case to the Supreme Court or is taken to the Supreme Court, then that decision uh, reflects on everyone, uh, on every single tribe. And uh, so they have to often practice a lot of sort of, uh, I guess, uh, thoughts uh, and strategy uh, to make sure that bad precedent is not set. They don't wow. lose rights. Uh, that's part of invoking the treaties is, is kind of thinking it through. Because if you invoke a treaty and you lose in court, then you've lost that right for not only your tribe, but for every other tribe that signed that treaty. Uh, an example would be the Yankton Sioux tribe, my father's tribe in South Dakota, you know, a tribal member, I think in the late 70s, invoked the right to do uh, gillnet fishing in the Missouri River. The tribe at that point was not ready to defend that right, that individual tribal member decided to invoke. And so it went to court and they lost, and, and they lost that right, not only for the Yankton Sioux tribe, but every other tribe on the Missouri River. So, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes it's hard to, uh, the fact is that very few uh, judges uh, know anything about Indian federal law. It's not a required um, course of study in law school or to pass the bar. And so they often come, um, you know, Justice uh, Sotomayor, she, before she came to the Supreme Court, she knew nothing about Indian federal law, like nothing, zero, right? But, you know, and other folks like Scalia, you know, he famously said that, you know, he, he of course, you know, being Catholic, he argued for the sovereignty of Opus Dei, which is a, you know, a Catholic sect, right? Uh, but he was opposed to tribal sovereignty. And so he uh, told, uh, I was told, told a native attorney that he didn't know anything about Indian federal law. He prided himself in that and he made it up as he went along, right? And, and the, you know, probably one of the uh, worst uh, rulings, you know, was, of course, the um, city of Cheryl, New York versus the Oneida nation. In that ruling, uh, the city of Cheryl, Cheryl, New York, had done a ceremony every year for 100 years where they would pay the Oneida tribe $1 to rent the land that the city was built on in New York State. One dollar. this big ceremony. Yeah. Well, after 100 years, uh, this was in the 1990s, they realized the tribe was still around <laughs> and it was time to renegotiate the lease. And they were very unhappy with this because, of course, it's through the title of everyone's real estate in this town under a cloud, right? It clouded their title. So they took it to the Supreme Court. And uh, guess who wrote the deciding decision that uh, decided that? Uh, no, it was actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She, oh. uh, she invoked the Doctrine of Discovery, a racist law, to say that the Oneida tribe had no title and could not, because if you're not... Uh, the doctrine of discovery is the basis of all land title in the United States, right? And basically right. it says is that uh, it was created by um, one of the first uh, chief justices of the Supreme Court, John Marshall. And, you know, it basically says it's based on two papal bulls, one in 1492 and one in 1550. And they uh, basically say that only uh, Christian discovering countries European countries have the, you know, once they discover and land and plant their flag, uh, then all of the title reverts to them, all the fee simple title. And then all that the indigenous people have is the title that, that the, um, what animals have of usage and occupation. That's the only title I claim they have to land. And so she invoked this in 2005. Wow. And, and so thereby saying that the Oneida Nation of New York, which, you know, the Oneida Nation is one of the six 
nations of the Iroquois Confederacy, which five of those nations occupied um, what is now upstate New York for about a thousand years. And she basically said that they had no title. And we often find ourselves, even with progressive or, you know, um, what have you, uh, white people, that sometimes they are so a part of the colonial system that they end up being uh, sort of arms of it, (laughs) invoking it, you know, putting down the the colonial law. And, uh, but surprisingly enough, Gorsuch, who, you know, of course, was Trump's appointee, was familiar with Indian federal law. He's probably the first justice on the Supreme Court that had any familiarity with Indian federal law. Uh, because, of course, he, he practiced in the West, so he dealt with a lot of cases, came through his courts, you know, having to do with that, with, with uh, Indian federal law. And so he has actually been really great. That's why we won the McGirt case. That's why he was the deciding vote, because he knows the law. And he actually is ruling fairly uh, now that, you know, we, I don't know what it'll be like with Amy Barrett, but we will see. But I, I, I suspect that she doesn't have any knowledge of Indian law. <laughs> and but I, that's where I think what I proposed in a podcast, and I had written about this before, is uh, um, a federal indigenous government uh, with its own court system to adjudicate these issues that is not based in the self-interest of the United States. I think would be a really great thing, um, particularly when we're talking about treaties. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, I could talk about the federal indigenous government idea later, but, but it, it would be a really a good counter and, and also, once again, make Native people much more real. Uh, I think that our reality is deeply tied to our political reality and that this attempt to disappear us, which has been U.S. policy for its entire history and before that colonial policy, is really a big part of why we uh, are um, stereotyped and mascotted and, um, and seen only in um, sort of these very sort of uh, fuzzy uh, ways, um, you know, as, as, you know, people's spiritual spirit animals, I mean, this kind of things. And so I think that um, but really it comes down to political reality and that would include a court system. So I'm looking at the moment we're in. It seems, let me know, Jackie Keeler, if you see that the moment might be an opportunity of a, of a novel kind, and I'm not, I know, I know you're pushing me off of being a white person feeling good about anything. So I will, <laughs> I'm not trying to wax about this, but with the hashtag 1619 project and the Black Lives Matter social criminal justice sort of discussions that have been taking place since the Memorial Day of 2020, whether there's an intersection with indigenous people's kinds of sovereignty. Is there an appetite? Is that the bandwidth for American history learning opening up to start repopulating the minds from the mythology that's been certainly occupying our minds and our bandwidth? Well, I think a lot of it is structural, of course. So when you have a structure in place that promotes and reinforces a white... Well, like our deeds, there's a structure, right? Every deed we're holding. Yeah, Uh, then it it really is sort of like a a labyrinth that directs you one way, leads your mind in one way, which, which is why, you know, in 2016, the majority of people who identify as white in this country voted for Trump, you know? I think right. uh, the exit polls for C- CNN did found that uh, about 90% of white men with a high school education voted for Trump. Uh, the lowest demographic would be uh, white college-educated women who still voted for him in the majority at 53%. Yes. 
Right. So this speaks to a level of programming and a structural programming uh, that exists in our society that's very pervasive. If you or I were white men with a high school degree, we would have a 90% chance of voting for Trump. That says a lot, you know? So I think that that's why the, the solution has to be structural. The solution has to be about an equally weighted political reality for indigenous nations, uh, because then that makes that, that forces the structure to change. And um, it puts a pressure on it that it has to address. Uh, with the 1619 Project, I think that uh, in my book, Standoff, I do look a, lot, look, look a lot at Jamestown versus the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, because the very um, crux of my book really looks at origin stories, right? Because right. when you hear the Bundys speaking, uh, you're talking about their right, their inalienable rights. And, and uh, or when you hear the Lakota and Dakota people standing up for their treaty rights, you're talking about um, rights that go back to the origins of these disparate people's uh, national origins. And uh, so I really had to look at those very carefully. Uh, you know, for indigenous people, I came up with a sort of a, I mean, it's easy to define a colonial people, right? Uh, a colonist is some, you know, occupies other people's homelands and, you know, takes the wealth and exports it back to their ruling class, to their 1%. That's, just, that's pretty much a colonist and a colony right there pretty easy to define. But what is an indigenous person? I didn't want to use like the entire definition given by the, um, by the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So, but I found a very simplistic uh, definition, which was actually uh, my, my grandmother's cousin was Vine Deloria Jr., the late Lakota mm -hmm. historian who wrote God is Red, Custer Died for Your Sins, all those books. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I found a, um, a definition he gave, uh, which was uh, indigenous people, right, with a capital P, they have an origin story which is tied to a meeting um, with a spiritual being who is a manifestation of the land itself. And in this meeting, they are given rules to live by, these original instructions. And, and I see these original instructions as almost algorithms, you know, sort of, you can do this, but you can't do that, oh. if-then statements. And, and from this then comes certain outcomes. And I think that from colonialism are certain outcomes. And I think, of course, climate change, uh, you know, the, the constant threat of nuclear winter, you know, all of these things are outcomes of colonialism and uh, a certain attitude towards the land and, you know. Wildfire and, um, too. So, yeah. So, and of course, for the Lakota and Dakota people, you know, we, our origin story begins with the meeting with the white buffalo calf woman and who is the manifestation of the Great Plains. Uh, you know, my grandfather used to say, you know, at that point, you know, we became Dakota when we met her. That's before that we were something else. But once we met her, then you became Dakota. And we made the agreement where she brought the pipe to us, which, you know, which represented, you know, our relationship to everything, you know, and, uh, and also particularly to the Buffalo Nation. And so, you know, we had rules, we had to become part of this community on the Great Plains and all the peoples on it, you know, which would be you know, uh, plant peoples, uh, the grasses, the buffalo people, you know, all you know, the, 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 all the birds, every, we, we became part of them. We had to make these agreements. And our agreements and our identity is based in a specific place on earth. I mean, I think with a corporate identity or a colonial identity, you can go anywhere and consume and then move on. You don't share the outcomes, right? Um, and so, but with, mm. if you are a people of a specific place, you share the, you know, the outcomes of what happens there. The, um, so your perspective is very different. And for my mother's people, the, for the Diné people, of course, it is 
is between the four sacred mountains and the four sacred rivers. We, you know, and the holy people came and you know gave us all these, you know, the corn and the dot and the songs to sing to be in harmony. So we have a specific identity that is in a specific place, and we have specific obligations and rules that we live by that make us a people with a capital P, an indigenous people. And so this is the definition I, I utilize in the book to understand how an indigenous people are different than a colonial people. And I would say even different than the people who have adopted like um, a, a religion like Christianity, which is not based specifically in a relationship to a specific place. But the, it's, it's a colonial religion as well. It's an imperial religion brought by the empire, you know. Right. And uh, you know, just, the Roman I, empire. Yeah. yeah. So I had to create basically a lot of paradigms to understand this. And one of the things I really, one of the starting points of the book is uh, I actually describe how I was interviewing, I was covering the Keystone XL pipeline. This was like in 2014. And I was interviewing South Dakota and Nebraska farmers and ranchers, you know, landowners, and they were actually working with the tribes to oppose the pipeline. And I was interviewing them and many of them are Republicans. You know, I was interviewing them and they were completely shocked. They were so shocked that the U.S. government had given governmental powers of eminent domain to a foreign country, to TransCanada, a foreign corporation, uh, TransCanada, which is based in Canada. And so I was looking at them as I was interviewing them. And I was like, don't How's you know? <laughs> no, I was thinking, uh, don't you know the history of this country is what I thought. Do you know I mean? I, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, the history to me, you know, uh, the history goes back to those early joint stock companies that started the colonies, you know, like the uh, Virginia Company of London Adventurers, right, which were early corporations, which uh, were given uh, governmental powers to rule over their colonies in the new here in the new world, quote unquote, new world uh, by the crown. Right. Um, you know, with Queen Elizabeth in this case, you know, didn't have the funds to be able to fund uh, exploration and colonization. And so she turned to her subjects and allowed them to create these joint stock companies and share the risk and, uh, and then gave them in exchange governmental powers. It's the very origin of this country, Jimmy, and they don't know this. Right. And instead, they sort of prefer this sort of pilgrim story. Uh, of course, you know, the pilgrims were, had, had, were also under the same, uh, were, had been promised land by the Virginia company, the same company. They landed very far north of the area, but it was still within the charter that was given uh, to uh, that company. They were working as corporate workers. Uh, they were expected to bring, give a profit to the corporation. Um, certainly at Jamestown, this is becoming very evident with the archaeological work they're doing. People were brutally abused. They didn't work enough, you know, tied to their beds. This is the origin story of this country. And so when we talk about the 1619 project where they, in order to make money for these companies, they had to turn, you know, slavery became a solution, uh, you know, uh, a profit, a profiteering solution, uh, you know, taking people's liberty from them uh, and their children and their grandchildren and their great, great grandchildren. And then the cons of, of maintaining power over for the elites, the planter elites in Virginia to maintain power over the workers, whether they were indentured servants or are people stolen from Africa. They had to uh, institute, you know, uh, a divide and conquer uh, sort of solution. And that was based on skin color, race, Jackie, the invention me, of race. Let me break in. I just want for people to know who they're listening to. For those of you who just joined us, 
You're listening to Digging Out. My guest is Jacqueline Keeler with a new book coming out next February. It's called Standoff, published by Tory House Press. She's referring to Standoff a good deal in our consideration of our colonial original sin. And I, I just want to put in, while you're explaining all this, like the sort of beginnings in Virginia, all that. So the word commonwealth has so much freight to it and what you're talking about. Yeah, I, uh, when I was working on the book, I, I, did, I had a couple of opportunities to speak in Virginia. 2018, I was invited to speak at the College of William and Mary, and I did go to, uh, to Jamestown and, and, uh -huh. and look at the digs and talk to, you know, the folks there and, and talk to a lot of the researchers at William and Mary. And I also spoke to the students as well. And, you know, the College of William and Mary is very prestigious, but it's also uh, most of the student body are from Virginia. And it was interesting <laughs> to talk to um, a group of students whose viewpoint is very localized. Do you know I mean, right. like, you know, uh, you know, I went to Dartmouth College and the students, they try to get them from all over. Most of them are from New England, from the Northeast, obviously. But, right. they, you know, but there is a sense of where this is a group whose who's image and whose understanding of themselves and of their state is very localized. Um, and I kept seeing these signs everywhere around there, which is like Virginia is for lovers, Virginia is the birthplace of democracy, these kind of little slogans that they have. And, and it's like, you, you do know that Virginia is the birthplace of racism. <laughs> you know, I mean, and they, they actually didn't seem to know. Do you know what I mean? And so, uh, of course, this was in 2018, you know, before uh, the publishing you know, last fall of the uh, 1619 edition of the New York Times. But yeah, it was, it was very interesting uh, to kind of uh, present to them my perspective, which was just so different than what they'd heard before. I think that is, I think, part of the bringing an indigenous perspective uh, is that you're, that you have, uh, being raised in a, in a native family, you know, with native parents uh, from two different tribes, you really begin, part of what is part of being part of a family like that is the constant discussion at home about our situation a very oh. a skeptical kind of uh, look at America that you hear all your family members take part in, you know? <laughs> I'd like to visit that. I mean, the extent to which oral tradition, I mean, how far back can you trace the oral tradition you've received? So we get a full on idea, the richness, the depth and the duration, the persistence, the vigor of that, handing down the history. How, how far do, you, do, do your own family oral traditions, do you think, go back? But you- Well, you know, I, my, I think that my family is very unusual in yes. Indian country. Granted. I think there's two different families when you're talking about my family. There's my yes. father's family who um, have been writers for a hundred years, you know, I publish books. I'm not the first person in my family to publish a book. You know, I think, uh, you know, particularly a lot of my great aunts have published books mm -hmm. and uh, on both sides of my family. And um, and so it's, you know, one of the great things about working on this book was I was able to go back and read their writing. And uh, one book that is really very, um, was very influential on me was my, my, my great aunt Ella's work, my great aunt Ella Deloria. And uh, she was my grandmother's aunt. She's actually my great, great aunt, technically speaking. And, um, and uh, she uh, wrote a book called Speaking of Indians. And it came out, I think it came out in the early 1940s. And it was written after, uh, in response to uh, the Indian Reorganization Act 
uh, which happened under the Roosevelt administration under uh, John Collier, who was a, uh, you know, he was, he was a liberal progressive. He was trying to do what he thought was best to make Indian people's lives better. But a lot of his policies, you know, a lot of Native people have issues with now, uh, particularly the Indian Realization Act, which um, dictated uh, what form Native governments should take and obliterated traditional governments. And so both of my tribes, though, the Yankton Sioux Tribe and the Navajo Nation, refused, they are not IRA governments, they refused to do so. So they paid the price for that politically, um, I would, particularly the Yankton Sioux Tribe, which is much smaller. So being able to go back and read what they wrote, and then addition, in addition to the oral stories, I actually opened Stand, stand Off with um, a series of stories that were told to me orally, um, which I tried to recount as well as I could. And okay. which I could probably speak better than I could write, but it was because I, you know, when you hear oral stories from your family, they have a cadence to them, even in English. Right, the and, delivery. Uh, yes. yes, the delivery. And so that is, it, it's actually a great mnemonic device as well. I, I would say that on that side of my family, the family stories do go back um, at least to, um, I mean, quite a while. You know, if you go back, you know, definitely before the 1860s, 1830s, and then if you go back to, you know, the stories like of uh, the White Buffalo Capilman, you're talking much, much further back. And then my mother's family, you know, my grandparents were traditional Navajos. They didn't speak English. And going home and being with them meant to be in an environment where English was not spoken. Um, like people would try to translate for a few days and they would just get bored, tired. <laughs> and then everything was in Navajo. There, you know, that generation, my grandparents' generation, um, you know, not many of them went to boarding school. I would say most of their friends and, and relatives their age were not English speakers. And uh, I mean, Navajos did go to boarding schools, but uh, not a large percentage of them. I would say for their generation, it would be in the signal digits, maybe 6% went to school. So most of them did not speak English and most of them were traditional Navajos. But Navajo Nation, we are very fortunate in that, uh, in that our land was not allotted out. There was this thing called the Dawes Act, which uh, the goal was to break up the Indian mass and give everyone a little a farm. And then, you know, that, and then they basically opened up any of the land that was quote unquote left over, right? They gave everyone so many, each individual person, so many acres in the tribe and everything that was quote unquote left over was then opened up to um, homesteading by white homesteaders. And so it was in this way that we became, uh, particularly on the Yankton Sioux Reservation, we became a minority on our own reservation. And then with the Navajo Nation, that didn't really happen. Uh, there are some very small parts of the Navajo Nation, New Mexico, which uh, called the checkerboard area, which are allied up, but it's a very tiny portion of the reservation. But the reservation is the size of the Republic of Ireland. And uh, it is contiguous. There are no allotted lands out and so my grandparents were able into the 21st century to live this way and feel, you know, they, have, they ran a ranch. They were, um, my grandmother wove rugs, uh, you know, occasionally my grandfather worked for the railroad with other Navajos. So it was a group kind of <laughs> a bunch of Navajos who could travel together. And, um, but yeah, it was, um, he was basically a cowboy, uh, you know, running cattle and sheep. You know, they were also farmers. They, they grew, um, he always grew watermelons, they grew corn, beans, squash, you know, they had orchards of peaches and, um, and apricots. They, yeah, they were, uh, they, they worked in family groups and, and, um, you know, running their ranches, their, their land, they had a pretty large air, 
grazing area that they, they had grazing rights to, uh, formal grazing rights. So yeah, I think it was really, you know, travel, being with my family, particularly ranching with my family, being having the entire extended family on horseback, you know, going out to get the cattle, you know, you, yeah, it was really, you know, I, I really look back into my family and, and those experiences and realize how unique and how lucky I was. You know, with that, the family stories go back pretty far, but I think, um, but, but what I learned most from my traditional Navajo grandparents and their siblings, my great aunts and uncles, was that uh, just their, um, their incredible um, sense of um, self-worth, the kind of bemused, skeptical way they approached American society, which was truly a foreign society to them. I, I, I recount in the book how sitting in my grandparents' house, I remember overhearing uh, with them and their friends uh, talking late one night by a kerosene lamp and they were talking in Navajo and I asked my uncle what they were talking about. And he said, oh, they're wondering who the Hebrews are, right? Ah. You know, and uh, yeah, this is like in the 1990s. They're wondering who the Hebrews are, right? They don't understand why they, why they have to, why they're such a big deal. <laughs> What's the big deal about these people? Why do we need to know about them? Why do we need to? And it's so funny because, you know, and then what happened? Point, yeah, it's, it's funny. And then what happened after that? What's funny first? Well, well, I mean, the thing is like, you know, I'd have to say that it hit me as a kid that, you know, I'd never thought to ask that question. Do you know what I mean? Right. And I can't say that my Dakota Episcopalian grandmother ever thought to ask that question either. Do you know what I mean? Right. And I'm like, that's where when you're raised in a certain framework, you don't even think to look at it that way. Jimmy. You know I mean? And, um, and I think that as a child being influenced by my grandparents this way and their, their whole generation, it wasn't just them. There was a whole, like them and their 20, you know, uh, siblings that were still alive. It was like a large group of people. There were like more elders and there were kids, you know, and, um, <laughs> and you just, you, you begin to realize, you know, um, like I think I was the only kid in that room and then my uncle and then all these elders, Rich. right? You know, and, and you know, all from a Navajo, a Diné perspective, do you know I mean? And so it was really quite education. Like they had a way of taking apart all my presumptions and putting them back together again in a totally different way. And, and that's what I hope my writing does. That's what I think. Uh, and I think that sometimes we need that so we can make better choices, so we can find better solutions and, and like I said, we can be better ethical, more moral people. Um, we need to sometimes get out of these structures that we assume, right? And, and once again, it, the problem is structural when you don't have any sort of other perspective to see anything, then most the human brain does tend to follow um, along very predictable routes. I mean, with the studies find that most people born into a religion stay in that religion, like over 90%. You know, very right. few people change or question things worldwide. It's not it's just a, a white problem. A folklore it's, it's, that fits in. Well, it's, it's, it's the way our human brain is wired. We're evolutionarily how we developed, you know, and it requires a lot of work to challenge. So for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Jacqueline Keeler. And she's a, a writer, an activist. A new book of hers will be coming out next February, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement and the American Story of the Bundy Takeover of Oregon's Maller Wildlife Refuge and the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe Standoff Against an Oil Pipeline in North Dakota. And it's published by Tory House Press. So I want to 
have you unpackaged, there's a lot more to talk about. Um, I want to look at what I would call the colonial business model, where the first Europeans, so, so-called first Europeans that came, that there was a pandemic they brought, what they had all been immune to various viruses and bacteria that, uh, that they had been exposed to in Europe, and they brought it to a naive to that, those germs, a population in the so-called new world. I don't think Columbus knew at the beginning that he was decimating the indigenous population, but they did catch on to that. And successive arri later arrivals, all were using that as their business model of spreading those germs. And I, I remember when our pandemic was opening up in the, the middle, late part of the winter 2020, Jackie and I, I remember I communicated, I thought, man, this is like a replay that the, what we're experiencing now is what happened in the new world in the 1490s and right thereafter for the next two centuries. Well, when I, when the pandemic hit, I did think of the pandemics of Europe. I had just recently watched a, uh, a video of how the Black Plague that attacked London in the 1600s. Yes, right? twice, and, I think. Um, yeah, and they actually, it was a reenactment even where families were like, um, you know, basically locked in their little homes, their little like couple rooms they had in London and a whole whole lane would be locked down and one member would be paid by the government to, to be a jailer to all their neighbors, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and basically people would be all locked in and, and until they either died or recovered, right? And it was very, it was really horrific. And so uh, I think it's, um, what did the plague kill one in three Europeans? It was quite devastating. The diseases that were brought to the new world, of course, uh, were their estimates of, you know, it being over 90% killing, you know, communities and populations traveling ahead of Europeans themselves, right, being passed into the communities ahead of them. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the, you know, I mean, of course, uh, it was a famous book, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel, you know, right. Jared um, by Diamond. Jared Diamond, yeah, which really is a great look and and summation of that issue where he was asked to answer the question about, you know, um, about, you know, what the, the success of, of Europe. And yeah, I definitely thought about that. And, you know, of course, when the pandemic hit, I, I had just uh, in January, I had traveled, I was on assignment traveling through the Navajo Nation. And I had gotten a, doing a piece on voting. Um, um, and, uh, and I had, you know, interviewed everyone from the Navajo Nation president to, you know, all, I traveled all over the Navajo Nation. And so, of course, the, it was really on my mind. And I'd actually, and then in the fall, I spent a lot of time reporting for my dad's reservation about the flooding that happened there. And people have been living in flooded yes. homes for, for yes. several months and, uh, and with E. coli, standing water with E. coli in it and all kinds. And so that had just been... Um, I got a phone call from FEMA and they, the, the, she, the head there wanted me to know that they had, that they were finally dealing with it. I got that phone call in late November, early December. So uh, both of these communities, the, my, my tribal communities were really in my mind and how they were going to deal with the COVID situation. And so I really kept close tabs on it. And that's why I did the podcast three times a week, starting in March. And we've done over 50 podcasts. And 
and uh, and we're actually going to be doing another one this Friday, uh, looking okay. at uh, the impacts of COVID on, in, in South Dakota on the reservations there. And um, we'll link to that uh, for sure. And, yeah, on, okay. on COVID and, and voting, both of those. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that uh, why I what really impressed me about the uh, the indigenous response was just how seriously Native communities took the issue. And we did a whole one actually, we did a podcast comparing, uh, we did one comparing the flu, the 1918 flu epidemic to the present one and looking, um, I, my co-host was Emily Washines, who was a Yakima uh, historian. And we uh, and sort of looked also at the um, historical sort of uh, stories of uh, a survival of pandemics. Of course, here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, particularly here in Oregon, Portland, Oregon on the Columbia River, you know, there was a village uh, here in the Portland area and Savvy Island, which had over 15,000 people, um, but the trading ships came. And, you know, when they returned several years later, they found that everyone had died. Like they found people's bodies that they had, hadn't been able to bury the dead. So Jackie, which island again? Had which Savvy island? island? Savvy, S-A-U-V-I-E, Savvy Island. And so it's, you know, it's quite, uh, you know, and then of course later the tribes here were hit well by smallpox in the 1790s um, to a smaller extent and then to a much larger extent by uh, malaria in the 1830s, which in reduced Oregon. their population severely, yes, in Oregon. And uh, to basically by the 1840s, I think the tribe that was here locally, there were only 75 people left. That's why a lot of the tribal reservations in Oregon are confederated tribes because these are all the people who, these are reservations composed of survivors of nations, I mean, all put on reservations. And so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty bad, particularly, you know, because of the contact on the coast. And um, although I understand the Hudson Bay Company did inoculate people, because um, of course they relied on, on Indian people to, as, uh, to bring in the, the fur and you know, to do the work on that level and trade with them. And so they did inoculate people. But, uh, but yeah, it was, um, I think for a lot, one of the things we explored in that particular episode was, you know, the trauma inherent on that, um, of, of how do you deal with that? And, and how do you survive? And does this trigger us in a way? And, um, and, but what has really impressed me is the way tribes have taken it really seriously. I think we did yes. an episode um, about the uh, checkpoints in South Dakota, where we had on um, our podcast, uh, the chairman of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and uh, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, uh, Harold Frazier is the chairman, um, had put up checkpoints and so did the Ogallala Sioux Tribe at Pine Ridge, Pine Ridge Reservation. And the South Dakota governor, uh, you know, Kirsty Nome, uh, she really tried to uh, put a stop to that. Like she wants these people to drive through and spread the disease, you know. And, and on the Navajo Nation, we saw how a single event could be a super spreader, which like people saw in South Korea, where a, a Christian meeting became a vector for spreading the virus in South, in South Korea. The same thing happened on the Navajo Nation. There was a Christian revival meeting, and that turned out to be a super spreader event, which really hit the Navajo Nation quite hard. Um, but the response from the Navajo Nation has been complete lockdowns every weekend. They've been doing them for months now, several months, 52-hour lockdowns. And so they've been really trying to hold, and they have been keeping um, the deaths. I've been, you know, I get a daily email from the Navajo Nation President's Office, and uh, they've been keeping uh, the death rate very low re now. 
Um, well, and yes, and some of the material that you've been posting that the, the White Mountain Apache have been successful in disseminating those oximeters that so people can track before there's that deadly yes. plummet of oxygenation and contact tracing. I mean, those it's an amazing yield of very, uh, despite how closely settled the inhabitants are, the actual very minimal numbers of deaths. And I don't know about the long haulers of those that are recovering from the cases that have been had. Well, the Navajos did have very high death rate at first, but they since recently last few months they've been able to get it down through these very yes. strict measures. And, uh, and I would say most Navajos, I mean, when you're looking at Ma doing contact tracing, say in Seoul, Korea, it's you know much more complicated. And of course, they've been using cell phone technology to to facilitate that. But in the Navajo Nation, you know, people don't have that much contact normally outside of their circles uh, because travel is hard. Um, people don't necessarily have a lot of money to spend on gas. You know, so it's actually people have a more limited group that they normally are in contact with. The super spreader event, like with the Christian event, which had a whole bunch of people in one place and then went back to different parts of the reservation, um, that was a, a very unusual event, and um, um, but was a significant factor in spreading it extensively. I do think the Navajo Nation also did a much better job of testing than was being done in the states of Arizona and Utah at the time. And so I think that their numbers were far more accurate than most of the groups. But I, I'm proud of how my um, how Indian people have been responding. Uh, you know, there is some research now. I mean, obviously, Native people have uh, have issues with diabetes, with all these issues, um, with the uh, what you call um, comorbidities, right? Um, well, thanks the, to the the food sovereignty that was overstepped with yes, the kind yes. of food that the Europeans, uh, you know, distributed exclusively. Exactly. And so it's um, so that is an issue. Um, but there's I, I read a study recently which found that actually uh, people with type O blood get have a better um, recovery rate, um, which most Native people are type O. Oh, really? In, in, in this hemisphere, yeah, most of them are type O, and um, they have a better recovery rate. They get a, a milder version. So that I don't know. Obviously, it could probably can't completely balance out the comorbidity issue, but. Oh. It, it, I, I kind of hope maybe <laughs> for people, but it's, but yeah, the show we're doing on Friday, it's, we're going to look at some of the people that have been lost, particularly on reservations in South Dakota. And it, it has been quite traumatic. There are, I mean, there are reservations where it's very low. I think Shine River has done well, I want to say. Of course, you know, they have been patrolling their borders. <laughs> so, and, well, but, uh, but yeah, it's, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think I, I, it's, it was a scary thing to propose because, the Navajo Nation has about 170,000 people that live on the reservation, uh, and then about uh, a little more than that, 180,000 who live off the reservation, and then they'd say about 140,000 who have not enrolled. Haven't, they, they qualify to enroll, but they haven't done it, right? Um, so most of, the, most of the population doesn't live on the reservation, at least two-thirds. But also what's been really impressive is the, the mutual aid that has arisen out of the need. Um, you see Navajos living in Phoenix and, and Salt Lake uh, putting together, you know, bringing these big semi trucks of supplies down to the, down home and stuff. And that's been, that's our tradition. That's our traditional way to do that kind of thing. Because of course, Navajos, we didn't have a government. Uh, we were basically um, anarchists. <laughs> uh, people lived in their family, um, you know, family communities. Leaders were locally respected people, which we called Matanis. 
we didn't actually even elect chiefs until we had to fight the Americans. But yeah, it's interesting to see those traditional ideas and precepts coming back and, and you know, are saving, really literally saving lives, uh, you know, these traditional Navajo concepts of mutual aid. Well, Jack, Jacqueline Keeler, really, I'm so appreciative of all of your time and you bring such an important education to all of us. And I hope that when I talk about the education process, it's that it is the most essential thing we can do is get educated. And then we get engaged, the two E's, right? So I, I thank you so much for giving us all of this time today on Digging Out. Sure. Thank you for having me. My guest was Jacqueline Keeler with a new book coming out next February, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement and the American Story of Sacred Lands. It's published by Tory House Press. And I wish you all the success in your book launch. I can't wait for my copy, Jackie. Thank you so much. A continuation of this interview is in a separate podcast on Digging Out on the same day. Next week, I'm bringing to you Gerline Joseph all about immigration, especially Haitian immigration. If you miss a show or a portion of one, you can look up KUCI.org for the Public Affairs Podcast Archives. Talk with you next week, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.